Praise God. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day He's coming, O glorious day. And singing that, I cannot help think, but do we really believe this? Do we really believe it with all of our hearts? Singing the gospel. That's what we just did. We believe the gospel. We sing the gospel. Now we come to hear the gospel as I preach the gospel. And I need your prayers. What a wonderful privilege we have this Lord's Day. So glad to have our visitor with us to worship with us. What a wonderful privilege we all have. Amen. As Brother Keith has mentioned, may we not take his benefits for granted and be thankful for all that he's given us. And oh, praise God to hear the word of the living God. We have the Bible this morning. 66 books of inspiration from God. His revelation, nothing else. No other revelation. This is the revelation, the canon of Scriptures closed. But the, this wonderful Bible has come to us on a sea of blood. Many martyrs paid a great price for us to have this word in our, in our tongue, our language today. So oh, may we never ever take that for granted. Amen. I'd like to speak to you this morning about being raised up with Christ from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. You could turn there, please. And I'd like to begin in prayer. And let's ask the Lord through His Holy Spirit to help us to have ears to hear, have a heart to perceive, and help me as I speak His Word to minister to your heart and soul this morning because it's the Spirit of God that's the real teacher. It's not the preacher. I'm just a voice. But I want to be obedient to the Lord and what the Lord has for us this morning. And I'd like to give to you just not the theology of the resurrection, but the application of the resurrection. How we can work this out. How we can live this in our everyday practical living. As I was uh, praying and thinking what to speak to you, about on this Lord's Day, on this resurrection morning, every day, really we should preach the gospel to ourselves, as Luther said, but we specifically celebrate His resurrection this day. So praise God. Let's pray. Our Father and our great God in heaven, there's no one beside you, creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but most of all, most importantly, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, Lord, we praise and thank You for Your most holy and glorious Word. We have it in our foreign language, our tongue, our tongue. Nothing in this world even comes close and compares with it. It is more precious than gold, as David said in Psalm 19, more desired than gold, than fine gold, and sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned, and keeping them is great reward. So Lord, we have prayed this morning that You would enlarge our hearts and give us more of a desire for Yourself, more of a desire for holy affections, for the heavenly things in heaven, where You are. We're too earthbound. Help us to be more heavenly minded. So Lord, we ask by Your grace and help, by Your Spirit, to teach us how to live through Your Word. And help us, O Lord, to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness. May we be doers of Your Word and just not hearers. Turn our obedience into Your love. And our love will prove that we love You. We thank You, Father. And help us to take heed according to Your Word. In all this, we pray in the name of Jesus for Your honor and glory. Amen and amen. I'd like to begin by giving you a story of an old Scottish preacher, John McNeil, liked to tell about an eagle that had been captured when it was quite young. The farmer who snared the bird put a restraint on it so it couldn't fly. And you know eagles, they love to fly high. And then he turned it loose to roam in the, in the barnyard in which he tended to, and it wasn't long till the eagle began to act like chickens. 
And you know those dirty birds, they love to stay low and scratch and peck on the ground. Eagle loves to soar high. You know, God gives us animals to teach us a lesson, doesn't He? This bird, this eagle that once soared high in the heavens above the mountaintop seemed satisfied at the time to live in the barnyard with the chickens with the lowly hens. One day the farmer visited, was visited by a shepherd who came down from the mountains where the eagles lived. Took a shepherd to teach him. Seeing the eagle, the shepherd said to the farmer, What a crying shame to keep that bird hobbled here in the barnyard. Why don't you let it go? The farmer agreed. Said, well, yeah, we should do something about it. So they cut off the restraint and they let the eagle continue to wander around. But he was still scratching and pecking as he was before like the other chickens. Well, the shepherd picked up, picked it up and set the, the eagle on a high stone wall. And for the first time, that eagle saw the grand expanse of the blue sky and the glowing sun in which it was born to soar. Then the eagle spread its wings and with a leap soared off into a tremendous spiral flight off that stone. Up, up, and up he soared. And at last it was acting like an eagle was supposed to act. To soar with eagle wings. And like the eagle... Beloved, the moral of the story is only that we as believers rise above this world and soar like the eagle where Christ is, seated on the right hand of the Father. This old world we live in, we don't need to be like the turkeys. We need to be like the eagles. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and set our mind on the heavenly realities that are in Jesus Christ our Lord and This is actually what Colossians chapter 3 speaks to us about as as we focus our attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ in this wonderful chapter, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. We're just going to cover today, but we see that knowing the truth about being raised up with Jesus Christ and living the Christian life invites us to live an ordinary life in an extraordinary way. And the only way we could do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, people can try and try in their own willpower to live the Christian life, but that's not going to happen until they are born again of the Spirit of God because it takes the Spirit of God to be born from above, to have those affections, to love God who is above. But God's everywhere, but Christ is. But we're talking about the heavenlies, the soar like the eagle soars. Paul's exhortations in chapter 3 are practical applications of the doctrine which he presented in chapter 2. That's Paul's order. He always brings doctrine and theology first, and then he gives the practical application in the latter part. And a brief overview in chapter 3 is this. Believers are seek to seek spiritual values in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1 through 4. We're going to look at that today. Next, he says, put off the sins of the old life in verse 5 through 11 and put on the virtues of the new life in verse 12 through 17. This in turn should affect the relationships with other members of the families and society in verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. You can read that in your devotional time. I think it would really pay for us to get the whole picture. But today we're going to only look at verses 1 through 4 and it's really loaded. These four verses are seen as a hinge, as we've been talking about these hinges, between the primarily doctrinal section of chapters 1 and 2, but here it's the primarily practical section of uh, chapters 3 and 4. So all the scriptures in this introduction provide for us the backdrop for Paul's message here in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And as he moves to the practical side of the epistle, he begins by calling his readers to that glorious preoccupation of the heavenly reality that is the very hallmark of true spirituality. He has just dealt with in the first half of this chapter of dealing and, and, and warning the believers at Colossae to beware of dogs and false teachers and, and not to be caught up into legalism, but to be caught up in Jesus Christ. 
Now, really what we're looking at today is the heavenly realities, but it's also true spirituality and this true and it's the starting point but it begins as a starting point but it becomes our way of life into practical personal holiness like Robert Machine always said what really matters is my personal holiness before God so today is the resurrected life how we can live that out being raised up with Jesus Christ and how we can obtain that and, and reckon it to be so in our lives. So we're really looking at application here. This whole message is going to be application. But the apostle gives to us the five features that will help us unfold the power of the resurrection within us as believers. Credits belong to Pastor John MacArthur on this outline. I could not resist. I mentioned this to Brother Keith. I said I had to borrow it. He is so good with outlines. I said, well, I'm just going to borrow his outlines and just preach the word. But we're going to be looking at these five features. Number one, the reminder. The reminder in verse 1a. Two, the responsibility in verse 1b, verse 2. Three, the resource in verse 1c. Four, the reason in verse 3. And fifth, the revelation in verse 4. Then I got one more R I'm going to give you as a surprise in our application in closing. But first we're going to look at the reminder, the responsibility, the resource, the reason, and the revelation. Let's look at the reminder. The reminder. Look at with me in verse 1a. 1a in Colossians chapter 3. Wonderful, wonderful. He says this, If then you have been raised up with Christ. If then you have been raised up with Christ. Now, let's keep in mind, the if here is the translation of the Old King James and New King James. It's not a bad translation, but this verse does not express any doubt in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He's not having doubt when he says if. It is what has been called the if of argument and may be better translated since. It's a transition. It's a transition word. Then he says, since then you were raised together with Christ. The word since is more to the original. So as mentioned in chapter 2, the believer is seen as having died with Jesus Christ, having been buried with Him, and having risen with Him among the dead. So the if denotes, as in chapter 2, verse 20, therefore... If you died with Christ from, basic, from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? To regulations. Now that's found in chapter 2, verse 20. And what are those regulations? This is religion, folks. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Notice the do, 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 do. Which all concern things which perish... With the using according to the commandments of the doctrines of men. That's religion. And then he says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. False humility and a neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, it doesn't have the resurrection power to deliver. Because it's all outward. It's external. It is reform, not regeneration. It's information, but not transformation. But see, what Paul gets to is the transformation. And that's what we're going to look at. Another way to paraphrase what Paul is saying, is, saying here is, you have died with Jesus Christ and He has set you free from the evil powers of the world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world? Why? The flesh loves it. People love to do what is natural. But the Spirit of God gives us a different direction. Verse 1, since you have been raised up with Christ. Now, in the original Greek there, it means co-resurrected. We've been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ. And, and actually what the verb expresses here is that co-resurrection. This is an accomplished fact that, a fact that Jesus Christ has accomplished. 
Believers spiritually are entered into Christ's death and resurrection. It's glorious. And it's something Christ has done, but the Spirit of God comes and applies this as we believe it. It's amazing. It's a spiritual union at the moment of salvation. Galatians 2.20 says this, and I love this verse of Scripture. I have been, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Isn't that glorious? Jesus has did it all. Now I've died with Him. I'm in spiritual union. I'm in oneness with Him. So this verse shows the union of the believer with the Lord so that they have a shared life in common. We are in one. I am His and He is mine, as the old hymn says. This verse shows that union of the believer with the Lord Jesus Christ so that they have a shared life. Now, if you could turn with me very quickly if you like, but i got a few verses to read in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Two verses. But Paul is speaking here of this wonderful, wonderful miracle that has taken place in salvation. And he also not only talks about salvation, he talks about our sanctification. It goes hand in glove. Justification, sanctification. But the justification is always first. And the sanctification begins where justification ends. Teaches the same glorious truth, but he says this in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Question. Then he gives the answer. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's sanctification. Now, it's important to note here, a lot of people get mixed up in this, and I had a, a debate years ago with an a elder of a church of Christ in a, a nursing home, and I tell you what, it got people's attention as we was discussing this back and forth, and I was being as friendly as I could in love, giving him the truth. But he had a disagreement with here. He said this word baptism means water baptism. I said, friend, if you believe in that, then you, work, you believe in works salvation. So salvation and grace would no longer be grace and salvation if it's by our works. It's the works of Jesus Christ. But right here he was saying that baptism is a water baptism. I said, no, 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 no. You need to study the text, my friend. And I said that lovingly. But the word here, baptism, is not H2O water. But it means an immersion in the Savior's death and resurrection in the Spirit. What has happened and through the union of Christ and believers has died and have been buried and have been risen with Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's not of our works. It is the works of Christ. That's the gospel. Doesn't that lift your heart and soul this morning? It's not what we have to do or what we have done. It's what Christ has done. It is what God has done. That's the miracle of miracles. It's saving faith alone. That brings us into this union. And, it's, and we take a hold of that by God's power and spirit of what Jesus has accomplished. What He has done. I like what Luther said. The gospel tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus has done for me. What has Jesus done for me? A.W. Tozer said this, Salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by His nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that He might win. And He destroyed His enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer Him. End quote. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Who would have ever thought that this is the way God would accomplish our salvation. Through weakness. Through death. By entering into the darkness. By allowing the evil to overpower Him. But that was at the end of the story. Christ rose again. And conquered sin. And conquered death. 
He arose a victor from the dark domain. He lives forever with the saints to reign. We're going to sing that. But that's glorious, isn't it? I can't get enough of that myself. What did Jesus say in Revelation 1.17? Listen to this. John the Apostle, one that knew him very well. And here he is on the island of Patmos, a garbage heap. In the spirit on the Lord's day. In the midst of all that evil and dump, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. Then he has a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to appear. And his, his feet's like burnished brass. And his voice like the many of waters. And his, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And, and then he falls on his feet. And, then, and listen to what he says. And then I saw him. I fell at his feet as dead. This is the apostle John. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me. Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. And Jesus says I am he who lives. And was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Then he says, Amen. And then he says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. <laughs> that should give us joy to shout to the heavens. He's alive. And that's why we have hope. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's greatest miracle of all, because without the resurrection of Jesus, We'll all will die in our sins and go to a punishing and perishing hell. But, but the case is, He has risen from the dead and there is hope. Beloved, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been raised with Christ. You share that with Him. The spiritual meaning of all that is to be said is that we say goodbye to the former way of life. We repent of our sin. We come to Christ. We embrace Him by faith. And there's a new life and sanctification of our personal holiness. And it's His holiness, not ours. We have been transformed by the power of the resurrected Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 I love this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, He is a new creation. Old things have been passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Everything is new. We have new affections, new life, new loves. Christ is our love. Heaven is our home. And we realize now we're just sojourners on this earth and this world is not my home. We're just a passing through. Praise God. There's a transformation that has been taking place in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. They possessed the divine life of God, the life, the quality of life that only Jesus gives, the eternal life. Jesus said, this is the life eternal that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And what he's talking about there is just not mere endless existence. Yeah, that's part of it. The longevity and the eternity. Yes, but it's now the kingdom of God is within you. Christ comes now, but in a heavenly quality of life brought to us by the indwelling Lord of glory. He comes to us. Isn't that the glory of Christianity? We don't have to work for it. It is Christ that comes for, to us. But yes, there's good works that follows. But that doesn't bring us our salvation. It's the obedience that follows after Christ has come and taken up residence within us. We're alive in Jesus Christ, raised up with Jesus Christ to the realities of the divine realm. Jesus said it to a religious man called Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. That's why you don't understand these things, Nicodemus. You're caught up in religion. At least Nicodemus came to him and was seeking and by night. He was embarrassed about it, but... Jesus had his answers. And, and it's, it's amazing, you read that in John chapter 3, that Nicodemus basically starts about talking about signs and wonders and miracles, and Jesus points him to the greatest miracle of all, the new birth. John 3, 5 through 7, Jesus answered most assuredly, and as you know, the original says, Amen, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Impossible. It must be God that does the work that provides the miracle. And then what Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You know what he's saying? He said, it's obvious. We've been born. Firstborn. Flesh is flesh. 
Then Jesus said it'd be very obvious. It was born of the Spirit, His Spirit. There'll be no demark, there'll be no gray area. You will know it. And then he says to Nicodemus, do not marvel. That means don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. I emphasize there, Jesus said, must. Must. It must happen in order to enter to the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God. Beloved, this is how salvation comes to us. Amen? Not of works, lest any man should boast. But of good, but the good works of Jesus. He fulfilled the law. He said that in in Matthew, didn't he? In chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. I did not come to abolish the law. I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And he fulfilled every bit of this law. He's the only one that kept the law of God perfectly because the law of God is the standard in which no one can arise to, only Jesus. Because it's perfect. It's perfect. But of good works of Jesus... And through His death and through His burial and through His resurrection. Can't say that enough. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is this. Christ comes to us. He gives us the power, the grace. Romans 6, 8-11. through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. If you're out there in Romans. Knowing that Christ had been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Just one time. My grandchildren asked me a question last week. They're not here today, but little Felicity asked, said, Paul, Jesus doesn't have to die anymore, does he? And I said, no, he doesn't, honey. He's died once and for all. It has been accomplished. It is finished. Paid in full. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise. Now listen to what Paul says here. Likewise. You also. So we, it's, it's important to know that, that Jesus is alive, right? But he says, likewise, you need to apply this to your life. Reckon. I, I love that. Reckon. That means consider it done. Account it done. Yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like what MacArthur says in his commentary here about this one word, reckon. Quote, he says, while it simply means to count or number something, it also means it's often used metaphorically to refer to having an absolute, unreserved confidence in what one's mind knows to be true. The kind of heartfelt confidence that affects his actions and decisions. And then he says this. Paul's not referring to mind games. In which we trick ourselves into thinking a certain way. Rather he is urging us to embrace by faith. What God has revealed to be true. Amen. And the scripture says. Paul says let God be true and every man a liar. What is true? So what is true in this case? Brother Ben read it. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. He read the, uh, half of the chapter, but 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul said it, For I delivered to you first of all, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Listen to this. According to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. According to the Scriptures. Notice what he says. According to the Scriptures. Not the experiences. The Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. And Paul says, since you have been raised up with Christ, notice, notice how many times with me in Colossians, if you read through that short little epistle, how Paul emphasizes within chapter 3 here, the centrality of Jesus Christ throughout this epistle. He uses the phrases with Christ in verse 1. Where Christ is, verse 1. With Christ, verse 3. When Christ, verse 4. With Him, verse 4. And he stresses again and again and again the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. It is centrality, Christ-centered. Paul's theology, you could basically say, summed up in this. He was Christ-centered. Christology. 
The theme of this wonderful epistle is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, is it not? That means Christ is first in all things. Is He first in your life today? Does He have preeminence over your life today? Is He first in everything in your life? So, we have the reminder here in verse 1a. Since then you have been raised up with Christ leads to the second point. Number two, the responsibility. The responsibility. So what would that be? What would the responsibility be? Well, it says this, and and it goes from verse 1b to verse 2. Now, a lot of translations basically says, um, he says this, Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And then he says, Set your mind, in verse 2, on things above, not on things of the earth. One translation, I like this, the LSB says, keep seeking. Keep seeking the things are above, are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So, first of all, keep seeking. That is present tense, isn't it? It's not past, it's keep seeking. Continual action. It indicates a continual action, a preoccupation with the eternal realities that are ours in Jesus Christ and to be the pattern of our life as a believer. It's very practical, isn't it? Our everyday living, whether it be in the home or in the job, whatever we do, we need to remember and be reminded that we are raised up with Christ, but He gives us practical application in how we can do this. Jesus Himself said it, didn't He? Matthew 6.33 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. He's speaking about, this is the antidote. This is the remedy for worry. You put God first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And don't you worry about all your needs. He will take care of you because He cares for you. So keep in mind that Paul's not advocating here a form of mysticism, but a very practical way of personal holiness. Our personal holiness, again, is so important. It's a preoccupation with heaven. It's being God conscious. It's being heaven conscious. It's actually viewing things, people, the events of this world through God's eyes, through the lens of the eternal. Don't you love that? With the eternal perspective. Only a person that's born again of the Spirit of God can understand this. Actually, it's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and it's also putting on the lens of eternity. I like what Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, said. He prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. May God stamp eternity on our eyeballs. So we constantly have eternity in view. Believers in Jesus Christ begin to live every day in their lives in the light of eternity, the heavenlies. And they will live out this heavenly values in this world to the glory of God. Colossians 3.2, Paul gives instruction. Never does Paul ever, ever leave a church when he writes an epistle in dark, guessing blindly what kind of direction they need to go. He always gives the light of the truth and the revelation. Now, how? How do we keep seeking those things above? That's the question, the word how. How do we do this? How do we keep seeking those things or above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God? The Scriptures gives the answer. Number one, set your mind on things above. We are to set our mind on things above. I love, love, love that word Set, because it's like it's, it's locked in. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Locked in. We need to be locked in on Christ. We need to be locked in on the gospel. We need to be locked in on the truth. We need to be locked in. We need to set our mind on things above. It's a battle of the mind, isn't it? And it's serious. Gird up the loins of your mind, Peter said. Gird it up. Number one, set your mind on things above. What does that mean? Well, here the original Greek simply means to be translated to think. He's talking about think or 
to the original Greek in the language here to have the inner disposition. You know, when you're pondering something in your mind, it's the inner disposition. You, you can rehash it over and over and over. And as a man thinks, so is he, Proverbs says. And once again, the present tense indicates a continuous action. Commentator Lightfoot paraphrases Paul's thought here. He said, quote, you must not only seek heaven, but you must think heaven. The believer's whole inner disposition should be like a compass. Don't you love compasses? I remember when I was in the military, we had to have a compass when I was in the infantry. And it was very dark and we didn't know which way to go. But that compass would direct us in the right path in the direction we should go. And that's the Bible. The Bible is like a compass. It directs us in the right path we should go. It points the needle towards heaven. Amen? The Bible points us to Jesus. The Bible points us to God. It's God bringing His revelation to us. We can't do this. We're too weak. We're too frail. Man, there's a way that seems right unto men. But the end thereof is death. But I tell you what, beloved. You read this book right here. It'll tell you the truth. Like Luther says, it comes after me. It's living. It's alive. It comes after me. It walks. It's, it's alive. Well... That needle is pointing heavenward, the heavenly, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 18. Listen to this. Paul the Apostle again says this. Look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. How do we do this? By faith. By faith. It's by believing. For the things which are seen, he says, are temporal. It's going to perish. It's going to pass away. But he says this, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There it is. And I like to put it right here. I wrote this in my notes. Eternal versus temporal. Which one wins? The eternal. The eternal. Well, there's a similarity of the two commands here given in this verse 1 and 2. It reinforces the impact. Set your mind on things above. And remember, the set is an ongoing continuous action. And also, there is a word also that suggests a striving. Jesus mentions this, strive to enter in. You agonize it. You strive. And then second, there is a concentrating, a meditation, a pondering to set, a renewing of the mind. That's the key. He said it in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, the old paraphrase of Philip's translation says, do not allow this world to press you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world. But, there's the hinge. Be transformed. Don't you love that word? <laughs> Hallelujah, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. That's spiritual worship. See, God has made us worshipers. Our whole life should be a worship. We come to worship today and meet together as God's people, but Monday through Saturday, every day of our life should be a worship to God. You see, in it we learn the truth. We learn how to think. We learn to have the mind of Christ. We learn to think on things like Paul says in Philippians 4.8, what is honorable and right and pure and lovely and good report, excellent, praiseworthy, and things. He says, think on these things that our minds may be transformed to dwell and meditate on. You know, it kind of reminds me like a computer. A computer must be reprogrammed. Our mind is far more complex than a computer. So it must be reprogrammed. It's like our spirits are born of the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit of God. But our mind, the things that we think, at times we should not think, we should be controlled by the Spirit of God. And the only way to be preoccupied with heavenly things is to saturate, to discipline ourselves, to saturate our minds with this Word of God. Amen? The Scriptures, the Bible is the only reliable source of knowledge about who God is, and the values of heaven. And by the way, it first points us to who God is. It gives us a knowledge of who God is. 
And then it gives us, and once we are saved and born again of the Spirit, we begin to know God personally. And communion. Those glories should dominate our thoughts and our hearts and our mind. you got chapter and verse. It's all over the Bible, folks. Psalm 1-2 comes to mind. But His delight, talking about the, the believer, His delight, He delights in it. In the law of the Lord and in His law, He meditates. He ponders day and night. Are you meditating on God's Word day and night? What about Joshua 1-8? That's a familiar one, isn't it? This book of the law, Joshua says, should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according all that is written in it, for then you will make your way, it will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And by the way, I've heard many of the many uh, charismatics take this verse and say, oh, there's prosperity, there's blessing. Well, there is the blessing of God, but we're rich in faith, but it's not the physical necessarily. We're rich in Christ. We get caught up in Christ. Yes, there's blessings that come to us from God Himself, but He's the blesser. And we never forget Him. Amen? We follow, we obey His Word. He's the great reward. Then He blesses us in turn. That's why David says, delight yourself in God. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's not necessarily become His desires become our desires. Because we delight in Him. And it's all in Jesus. Amen? So there's the reminder. That's the responsibility. Look, third. There's the resource. The resource. That, what is the resource? Verse 1c. Colossians. Where Christ is. That's the resource. Where Christ is. He's seated. Where is He? He's seated at the right hand of God. And the believer's resource is none other than the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul said. And being risen and glorified in Christ, who seated at the right hand of God, how glorious is that resource? He is the glory of the church. And that's been lost today, beloved. Because now it's no longer Christ-centered, it's man-centered. And it's no longer Christ being exalted, it's somehow preachers being exalted. They're in reverse. And no wonder Echabod's written on the churches today, the glory of God's departed, but the glory can return if we seek Him and call out and repent to God desperately. And be broken before Him. The Word of God speaks often of Christ's exalted position. Let me give you a few scriptures here. He's exalted at the right hand of God the Father, is He not? At the right hand is a place of power. Listen to Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Jesus told the accusers at his trial before he went to the cross in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, He said this, From now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in the sermon that day on uh, the day of Pentecost, the 50th, which it means, Peter got up and told the crowd that day as he preached that great sermon in Acts 2.33, that verse says Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And in Acts 5.31, Peter again and the other apostles described Jesus to the religious Sanhedrin and said, He's the one whom God has exalted to His right hand as the Prince and Savior. And you know about Stephen as he was being martyred, as they were taking stones and snuffing out his life and trying to... because they didn't want to hear the truth because they plugged their ears and they were pierced to the heart. These religious people killed him and, and ushered him right into glory. And as Stephen cried out in Acts 7.56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Only time you see Jesus standing. Given an innovation, come in, Stephen. 
you're the first martyr of the church in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle describes Jesus as Romans 8.34 as he who is at the right hand of God also intercedes for us because God, according to Ephesians 1.20, has raised Him from the dead, seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places. And the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1.3, when He had made purifications for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because of that, according to Hebrews 8.1, we have such a high priest who has been seated, taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven's Folks, He's at the right hand of God now. He is the one, according to 1 Peter 3.22, who is at the right hand of God, and having gone into heaven, gone through the heavens, after angels and authorities and powers has subjected to Him, He is exalted in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Folks, He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the Lord of glory, and He's worthy of praise. So we have the reminder... Two, we have the responsibility. Three, we have the resource. Now, fourth, we have the reason. There's a reason. What's the reason? Look at verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul stresses here that this reason or should be for the Christian is should be a norm. Why? Because believers... Believers in Jesus Christ have died and the world and to the world system through faith in Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, Paul says in Galatians 6:14, God forbid, or may it never be, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Have you been crucified to the world? Are you dead to the world? Paul was. But notice in the text in Colossians 3.3, you have died. Past tense. Now stay with me here. This indicates a death to self that took place at salvation. Now in what sense has the believer died? Very important that we get this because a lot of people get confused here. It's a very good question though in the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid for. We must remember that. It's the penalty of sin. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, He said paid in full. He paid the wages of our sin. He paid it in full. So Jesus our Lord paid that in full and it cost Him His very blood, the precious blood of God's own Son to pay for our sins in which we'd be, we are deserving to die because the soul that sins shall die, right? Jesus died the death. He paid the penalty. But He was the perfect Son of God. We're the ones that deserve the death to go to hell. Jesus took our hell. He took the wrath of God. He paid the penalty. Oh, beloved, how God must hate sin to pay such a penalty of an awful price, a high cost, an awful death that sent the Son of God and a sin that can never claim us again, beloved. There's the good news. So we died into sin in a sense that when we put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but only the penalty has been dealt with. That's a big thing to understand because the presence the power of sin still affects us until we go home to be with the Lord forever. There are some people out there that believe that the sin can be eradicated in this way. It cannot happen, folks. Don't you wish it could? But it can't. That's right. We would be glorified. But not until we're glorified. The presence and power of sin is still here in our hearts. But it can be dealt with through the cross and as we put it to death and live a victorious life. Listen to me very closely. It cannot, the, the sin cannot condemn us. How? Because not only have believers died to sin, but also to their, their lives are hidden with Christ and God. That's the positive. So what does this mean? What does it mean that our lives are hid with Christ and God? The answer is given in 1 Corinthians 6.17. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. 
Each believer are partakers of God's holiness, the divine nature. Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there's no condemnation to those in Jesus Christ. You see, next, let me move next here on this, because this is very important. Not only we share a common life with the Father and Son, we also have a new life that is concealed from the world. You know, Paul says one day we're going to judge the world. That's incredible. But it's not the way Jesus is going to judge the world. Don't get confused here. In other words, you are with Christ. He has exalted you with Him. This is hard for us to grasp, but that's exactly what it means to be in the heavenlies. We are victorious in Him. So why are we living defeated lives? Good question. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Foolishness to him. Because he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned. Paul pointed out that the true manifestation of the sons of God is yet to come to the next world. This best life now is a lie from hell. Because we have a cross. We have losses. We deny ourselves. We have the hardships. Our best life begins, as MacArthur says, when we enter heaven. People cannot see what believers really are like. But God sees us. Right? Romans 8, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the root. Listen to this. For the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation waits for the sons of God to come in. Apostle John implied this in to our true identity in Jesus Christ in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, the sons of God, and it shall not yet appear what we shall be. We shall be like Him one day. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see in a mirror, it's dimly. It's, there's a fog there, but, but, there's the hinge. Get ready, there's a revelation coming. Then face to face one day. We will see Jesus face to face. And he says, now I know in part, only in part now. But then I shall know just as I'm known. The fullness will come. See, everybody wants the millennium blessings now and the fullness now. But that's not going to happen until we are glorified. And next is believers are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And I love this. Because we are hidden in Christ. What does that mean? We are protected from the wrath of God. We are hidden in Christ. We are protected from all the foes of Christ. All the foes and the enemies of God. But we are protected most of all by God Himself. God protects us from Himself. How does He do that? In Jesus. In Christ. 1 Peter 1.4 The blessings of salvation here speaks of the inheritance which is imperishable undefiled, and will not fade away. And then he says this, reserved. Don't you love that? There's a reservation in heaven for you. What a comfort this is. Our great high priest is able to save forever to those who draw near to him through him, since he always lives, because he lives, to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25. I love what Robert Murray McShane says here. If I can just hear Christ praying for me in the next room... I would not fear a million enemies. And he's praying. He's interceding. But can you imagine hearing him pray for you? That your faith will not fail? That those to whom the Son gives eternal life shall never perish, but no one shall pluck them or snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said that. John 10, 28. No one's going to snatch you out of the Father's hand. They are hidden away deep in the shelter of God. Listen, rock of ages, like the old hymn says, cleft for me, let me, what? Hide myself in thee. We need to be hiding in Christ. I love the stanza. Most hymn books leaves this stanza out. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Why don't they leave that out? Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wow. Well, so far we've seen the reminder, the responsibility, the resource, the reason, 
Fifth, the revelation. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life... Get that? When Christ... When? That's the revelation, when He comes back. Who is our life? Our life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But is Jesus your life? Is revealed. Listen, twice He says revealed. He is revealed, then you also would be revealed with Him in glory. Speaks of His second coming, doesn't it? Although the world may not know how to recognize those whose lives are hidden with Jesus Christ, they will also, one day, they will not always be, that will not always be the case. I'm sorry, get my words right. Because there is a coming, a great day of reassurance. There's coming a great day for every true believer. And this is going to happen at the second coming. The second coming of Jesus Christ when He comes. That's our blessed hope, folks. He's risen again. He's at the right hand of God. But one day He's going to step up off the throne. And He's going to come back in great power and glory. And He's going to set the trumpet to His mouth. And He's going to blow the trumpet Himself, the King. And all the saints of glory is going to be a resurrection day of all the righteous and the unrighteous. And all those in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of God. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. All he has to do is speak the word, right? Revelation 19, he comes back as King of kings, Lord of lords. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You could go there if you like to. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6 through 10. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. God takes care of our enemies, doesn't He? Because vengeance is the Lord's. And to give you who are troubled rest with us. You know, you can rest in God in the midst of trouble because your life is hidden with Christ. Rest with us. What's He talking about? Rest with us apostles. Rest with us believers. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. There's the word again, revealed. From heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And listen to this. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from glory of His power, from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day, to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. On that great day, 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, The Lord knows those who are His. And as Lightfoot says, he comments, The veil which now shrouds your higher life from others and even partly from yourselves will then be drawn the world which persecutes, despises, ignores now will then be blinded with the dazzling glory of the revelation. Wow. When Christ comes. When Christ, who is our life? Christ, who is our life? Philippians 1.21. Brother Keith preached on this several months ago. He says, for to me, to what? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul says, if I have Christ, I have everything. If I have Christ, He's my life. He's my, he's my love. He's my beloved. He's my first love. He is my all in all. If I have Christ, nothing can defeat me. They can take my body and persecute me. They can put pain on me here. But it's going to usher me into glory. So the key to living the risen life is a life centered on Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. In Christ, died with Christ, raised with Christ. Christ and Christ alone. The reminder, the responsibility, the resource, the reason, the revelation. And let me add one more. I'm adding this one. The remedy. How about that? The remedy. What's the remedy? Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Here's the remedy. And this is the application I have for you. I pray I can get through this application. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, with which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made, made us alive together, listen, together with Christ, 
by grace you have been saved, raised us up together and made us to sit together. There's the word together. He raised us up together to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceedingly riches of His grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's the gospel. But God, but God, He's made us alive with Christ. God raised us up together. We are raised up with Christ because Jesus said He is the resurrection and the life. And He has the power. Raised us up. In that moment when we were united with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the new birth. Now, let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be raised up with Christ? This is application. Beloved, it means to be raised up with Christ is to be transferred from death to life. From darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. Paul said that. And it's by His mercy, His compassion, and it's by His power. Those two go together in salvation. Romans 6, 5-7 through 7, For if we've been united with Him in death like His, we shall be certainly united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We no longer serve sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. A little girl that was saved, I read this story here. She applied for membership to a local church before the pastor and she was interviewed. We do that here. The pastor asked, were, were, were you a sinner? And she, and she said, yes, I was a sinner. Are you still a sinner? That's a good question. Are you still a sinner? The pastor asked. And she said, yes, I'm still a sinner. <laughs> And then he asked a very important question. What change has taken place in your life? The pastor asked. And the little girl replied in such a wonderful way. She said, the best way I can explain that, pastor, is that I used to be a sinner running after sin. But now I'm a sinner, saved by grace, running away from sin. Amen. That's wise. Out of the mouths of babes and suckers. God's perfected praise. That's what we should be doing. It's not our perfection that saves us. It's the direction that determines the evidence of salvation. Do you hate sin? Are you running away from it? Do you shun evil? Do you love the Lord? And do you run toward Him? You see, let me give one more question in conclusion here. When will God show the riches of His amazing grace in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul says in the ages to come, God's going to show the immeasurable riches of His grace to all creation and eternity. Imagine... If God had appointed you and sent you to India to preach the gospel and you meet a leper, and you know lepers, lepers, lepers have an incurable disease. It's actually a disease that affects the nervous system. They lose their feelings. That's why you see they lose their hands, their, their fingers, their noses, their ears. It, they can't feel no more. And that's what sin does. It... it, it cauterizes our conscience. And, and God sends you, and God basically speaks to you and says, now you embrace that leper. You take that leper and kiss him on the cheek. And you look at that leper and you see a deformed face. You see a person that is eaten away and what that disease has done and running sores. And you think to yourself, Lord, how? You've got to be kidding. I cannot ever embrace a leper. Most of us would find that very difficult, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. But you know what? Can I say this? That's exactly what God has done in saving us. In His mercy and love, He has embraced lepers. Just like the father in Luke 15, he ran and he embraced that prodigal's wasteful, dirty son that smelled like pig stench. He embraced him. The father ran after him. He kissed him. He came to himself. That, that man repented. And he ran home to the father. And the father embraced him and kissed him and kissed him. That's what God does. Like a leper. We were deformed by sin. Sin was eating away at our soul. We had running sores in our lives. But God, rich in mercy, embraced you. He kissed you. He brought you in. 
Oh, God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son and took, sent Him to a cruel cross to die for you so that you can have salvation today. That's the good news, beloved, that I present to you today. No condemnation in Jesus Christ. He saves to the uttermost. So, why did God save you? Well, basically, He, made, he saved you from sin to make worshipers out of you and me. He saves us from sin, from death, and from hell. That's the great benefits. But most of all, He saves us from the wrath to come. To make us worshipers. To make us worshipers. Christ died for you. It's all because of His amazing grace in Jesus Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. Raise us up with Christ. All for the praise of the glory of His grace. Hallelujah. We have the reminder... We have the responsibility. We have the resource. We have the reason. We have the revelation. And praise God, we have the remedy. Amen? In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. Listen, as Brother Keith talked about this morning. The forgiveness of sins, beloved. Washed in the blood of the Lamb according to the riches of His grace. So that reason alone we should be eternally grateful now. Now we kiss the Son. Now we kiss the Son. We worship Him. We serve Him. And shouldn't we not love and obey Him for all that He's done for us? And we come to love Him more and more because of what He did. He paid the price. He paid the ultimate price. And the answer to these lost souls today, repent and believe the Gospel. Amen? Turn from your wicked ways. And God will have mercy upon you. Believe the gospel. Embrace Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father and our great God, how truly thankful for we are for salvation that has come to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we are eternally grateful for Your great love. You sent Your Son, Your one and only Son. You sent Your best. You didn't send an archangel. You sent Your Son at Your right hand. He came to this world of woe and darkness, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, fulfilled your law in every way. He pleased you in every way, his entire life, and humbled himself to the death of a cross of shame. Bore our sin, died for our sin, became sin, took your wrath, took our place as our substitute as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and was buried, took our sins far as the east as from the west. And now, on the third day, He rose again over sin, death, and hell. Triumphant. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We cannot thank You enough for this great salvation that has come to us all because of your love and the grace in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ lives, we can live also. We thank you, praise you for this time of worship. Lord, may we worship you and give you thanks and just take this into the highways and byways. And Lord, most of all, may we apply these great truths to our lives by your precious Holy Spirit. May we not forget it. Help us every day to love you more and more by your grace and power. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.